0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Um, We're going to look at Hebrews 1, verses 4 through 14. I'm calling this message, The Transcendent Christ, The Transcendent Christ. So go ahead and flip there again, Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll go ahead and read that and pick it up in verse 4. These are the words of God. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Our Father in God, we have gathered again this evening to celebrate the risen Christ. And in our gathering here, we confess and readily admit that some of us are are tired and torn by the effects of pride and sin. Having confessed our sins and ready to receive your grace, we know that part of that grace is an exhortation from your word. So we ask that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds so that we can learn and be doers of the word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. One of the problems that can cripple us, and every other confessing Christian for that matter, is our propensity to know in our heads that something is doctrinally true and sound, but also our penchant to throw it on simmer and eventually we sort of forget about what it is we were confessing in the first place. In this case, we are quick to assert that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we may even have it on a picture on the wall, maybe with a nice Hawaiian sunset in the background. But we become so familiar with it that we neglect the ramifications of what we are really saying. That is to say, we need to mature in our bridging of the gap between what we believe and how we live. I would argue that this is what is currently giving us the problems in our tawdry, garish culture today. We have Obergefell on the books and all sorts of perversions in our streets. And all of these explicitly sinful proclivities are happening because we as the church say we believe something to be true, but do not act like it is true. All of these explicitly sinful, God-violating proclivities are happening because we as the church say we believe something to be true, but do not act like it is true. We say that Jesus is the Lord and King but we have expressly ruled out any real and meaningful applications of that lordship. By and large, we as the church have sought off the branch we're sitting on, and we've done so thinking and calculating that the ground landing won't be all that bad after all. In light of our current predicament, the text before us serves as an important element as it pertains to our mission as Cross and Crown Church. If you recall from last week... I laid the foundation for the book of Hebrews by explaining how Hebrews is the book of Deuteronomy. Hebrews itself is the book of Deuteronomy. Both books are structured in the same way, and both books serve to prepare its people for an invasion. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites were on the precipice of taking the land of Canaan after spending 40 years in the wilderness. Hebrews was written during the 40-year gap between Jesus' death and resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Um, So, Hebrews was written in the same way as the church was prepared to take the land. So, the last days that you read in your New Testament, especially here in Hebrews chapter 1, the last days are, and that's a reference to, the last days of the Old Covenant era. The last days were present days for those early Christians. In other words, Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension served as the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth, the beginning of the kingdom of God in relation to Christ's mediatorial reign. We'll come back to that concept in a bit. The overlap of these 40 years was the start of the new covenant era and the end of the old covenant era, which means that Hebrews, like Deuteronomy, is a sermonic law word given to God's people to prepare them for the invasion of the world. And that's essentially what the first Christians were doing during this time. Once persecution hit, they scattered and the gospel went to the known world. Once the decisive end of the Judaic aeon was completed, the gospel would then go forth, breaking free from all ties to the old covenant system and march onward to conquer the hitherlands. Now, The reason we need to know this context is because it will aid us in our reading of the book of Hebrews. As mentioned last week, Hebrews is a book of victory. Hebrews is a book of victory. Jesus has conquered Satan, Jesus has conquered sin, Jesus has conquered death, he has brought an end to the ceremonies attached to the law of Moses, his kingdom rule is now being expanded, and because of all of that, we have to keep careful watch on ourselves. We ought not to shrink back from God's calling on our lives. Which means that we have to know sound doctrine, and we not only just know sound doctrine, we have to seek to implement sound doctrine in every single area of our lives. Even still, another quick reminder is in order. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus has been lifted high, and he has the name above every name. Jesus Christ has the name above every name. The word every means what it says. He is, he is Lord, and He is sovereign over everyone. There is no place in this world where Jesus isn't Lord, and there is no person in this world who is exempt from bowing down before Him. Every means every. When you are given the name above all names, and your superiority is asserted, this means that you get to receive the worship, the value, the praise, and the glory. When you possess the name, you get the glory, the worship. To put it differently, Hebrews chapter 1 gives us a glimpse at the transcendent Christ. Hebrews 1 gives us a glimpse at the transcendent Christ. Now, because Hebrews is structured like Deuteronomy, and because both are essentially a covenantally structured document, we need to know how those covenants were laid out. As I mentioned last week, Deuteronomy, and thus Hebrews, follows the pattern set forth in the ancient suzerain-vassal treaties. Um, The suzerain was the conquering king, the vassals were the conquered people, and any time in the ancient Near East you would have a king conquering a people, they would set up a covenant relationship, the boundaries for the relationship. How, what are the ethics of this newfound um, arrangement, this newfound treaty, um, so, Deuteronomy follows that, um, as does all of the other um, treaties we find in the ancient Near East. And, and actually, a side note, Ray Sutton's book, That You May Prosper, excellent book by the way, that book explores these themes quite wonderfully, so you should, you should definitely read that. So, the very first step in those treaties is the issue of transcendency. The issue of transcendency. Who is the authority? Who's the authority? What makes this distinction so? Where does the buck actually stop? Who is in charge of this relationship? Who who's in charge? Since covenants are ratified and enacted only by legal declaration, who is the person in authority who gets to do this? Who gets to declare their sovereignty in this relationship. So all of those questions start there. They start with this issue of transcendency. Transcendency is an issue of sovereign, ineffable ultimacy. Transcendency is an issue of sovereign, ineffable ultimacy. So Hebrews one is that element, the first point of the covenant treaty, what we call transcendency, sovereignty. So we'll we'll come back to this later. So let's consider our passage first, and then it will become obvious as we go. There are three main sections to this particular text, and the entire passage is essentially a series of quotations from the Old Testament. The focus is on Christ being superior to angels and thus superior to men. And the reason it's about angels is because in the Old Covenant, angels acted as intermediaries. In the Old Covenant system, angels... Acted as intermediaries, they were the mediators. Um, angels deliver the mail, so to speak. They were the ones that carried out God's purposes on earth. They helped defeat God's enemies. They assisted in helping execute God's covenantal plans. And angels especially helped as a go-between. They were the mediators. They were the ones um, acting on behalf of God's people and on behalf of God's throne. The Bible tells us. That they were the ones who delivered the law of Moses, Acts seven fifty three. So Hebrews one wants to emphasize the way in which the arrival of Jesus in history as a man has now taken over this mediatorial role. That's the emphasis here. You know why? You might ask why they why even talk about angels? Why is that important? Why why are we even messing around with that subject? That's just you know vain speculation and so on. Well, that's why. Hebrews 1 is emphasizing the way in which the arrival of Jesus in history as a man has now taken over this mediatorial role. Jesus isn't just another angel on the scene, nor is He below their authority. Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. He is the mediator of the new and better covenant. He is the divine Son who has the inheritance of the earth angels worship and serve Jesus, not vice versa. So, here are the three things the writer wants to drive home in this passage. First, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the begotten Son of God. Let's look at verse 4. Remember, he starts off, you know, long ago at many times in many ways. But in these last days, Jesus came, he's the heir of everything, he's the creator, he's the radiance of the glory of God, he's the exact imprint of his nature, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, he made purifications for, purification for sins, and, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he, the writer is now going to argue his case, quoting scripture. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. So Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the begotten Son of God. Now, the writer quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7, then 2 Samuel 7.14, then Deuteronomy 32.43, and then finally Psalm 104.4. The emphasis here is the fact that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. This is not about the ontological relationship of the Son to the Father in eternity, but rather Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. Ontology is simply how we describe the nature of someone, their being. This isn't about the the relationship of the Son to the Father as it pertains to their being God a part of the Godhead, but rather, this passage is about Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Psalm 2-7 is quoted in Acts and in other places as a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died and was then raised, he is now the begotten Son of God. He is the firstborn of creation. The resurrection gave this God-man a position of son. He is the begotten Son. This sonship is also related to the citation in verse 5 from 2 Samuel 7.14. In that passage in Second Samuel, God promised David that he would have a son sit on his throne. Yes, his son Solomon did sit on the throne. But the greater messianic fulfillment is Jesus, the progeny of David, who is seated now and forever. So David was promised a son. Solomon, yes, fulfills that immediately. But there was a greater fulfillment in Jesus. So the the text says the angels must worship this son because he is their creator, their authority. Jesus was raised, Jesus is David's son, he is the begotten son of God. So, angels serve God's purposes, and they do not do their own thing. They are God's creation, they do God's bidding, and they are not to be the object of our worship. They are called to worship Christ, and, incidentally, so are we. Now, Judaism was known for having a fascination with angels, sometimes to an unhelpful degree, as many would find themselves worshiping angels and speculating about them. We must not do that. We must not speculate to an unhealthy degree. We must see Christ for who He is, the Son who is greater than the angels and men. So that's the first thing we learn in this section, section of Scripture. Jesus is the begotten Son of God. The second thing here in this passage has to do with verses 8 through 12. And I'm going to go ahead and read that, and you can follow along. But of the Son, he says, "'Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain.'" They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Quoting from Psalm 45 and then Psalm 102, the writer uses these passages to describe the fact that Jesus is the bringer of righteousness, and in His coming, this new heavens and new earth will begin will be inaugurated, and the old era will be rolled up like a garment. The old era will be rolled up like a garment. Verse 8 makes it clear that God's throne is established forever, that Jesus is God. And in verse 9, that this God-man loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. Notice verse 8, because many of the cults get this wrong when they deny the deity of Jesus and so on and so forth. So, this is a good verse to maybe underline and and reference, but notice what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what the apostles and the writers in the New Testament affirm is that Jesus is God. And this is one of the ways that they talk about Jesus. Verse 8, but of the Son, of the Son, this is Jesus, he says... Your throne, O God. Your throne, O God. That's an important element to our understanding of Jesus. Now, to further drive home the point, Jesus, the Son of God, who is also God the Son, laid the foundation of the earth from the beginning, verse 10. His hands have been busy at work, and the earth will perish because it won't last forever like God. However, his new creation, which reflects the fact that his years have no end, will take its place. This is not about the second coming, it's about the first coming, the incarnation. The old covenant era will be rolled up, the old earth, all of these old things will be brought to an end, and this new creation will be implemented on earth as it is in heaven. That's the point of this verse. Now. The third and final point here in this section is regarding the Messiahship of Jesus, God's true King at God's right hand, His sovereign rule that will extend in history until justice takes root and His enemies are defeated. This particular quote in verse 13 is from Psalm 110.1, which is the most quoted psalm or passage or verse in in the New Testament from the Old. And it serves to assert the transcendency of Christ over all things, including the angels. So let's look at the verse. I'm going to read it and then we're going to pick each part, pick it apart. It says this "Into which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So the first phrase, Sit at my right hand. Jesus Christ isn't at the right hand of God taking a break because he's tired and needs the rest. He's there because he's reigning. Jesus is there because he's reigning. That's what kings do on their throne. They sit and they rule. The right hand of God, listen, the right hand of God is the place of ultimate authority, the kind of transcendental authority that gets to call the shots. That's the right hand of God. It's the place of ultimate authority. Jesus is the creator and he's also the recreator who makes all things new, as Revelation tells us. So Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, the majesty of God, because he is Lord and he is King. But notice what the next part says Sit at my right hand until I make. Until I make. His rule and reign is now, not later. His rule and reign is concurrent to human history, this side of His resurrection, and it won't stop until all things are accomplished. His rule and reign is concurrent to human history, this side of the resurrection, and it won't stop until all things are accomplished. The until is there until all of this is done. He is seated until. He is reigning now until. And the question is, until what? Well, we get, we get the answer in the very next phrase, until I make your enemies. Jesus Christ has enemies, and he will rule until they are, are subdued. Jesus Christ has enemies, and he will rule until they are subdued. The enemies of the kingdom of Christ are ripe for the picking. When we go into the world to preach the gospel, we are preaching in this gospel the rule and reign of Christ. But we also need to know who we are preaching to. We are preaching to Christ's enemies. In our gospel proclamation to the enemies of Christ, we're not telling them to repent so that Christ can rule over them. We're telling them to repent because Christ already rules over them. I'll say it again. In our gospel proclamation to the enemies of Christ, we're not telling them to repent. We're not urging them to repentance so that Christ can then rule over them. We're telling them to repent because Christ already rules over them. Jesus Christ has enemies. Until I make your enemies what? A footstool for your feet. A footstool for your feet. King Jesus rules over his enemies. And they are conquered and brought underneath his visible authority in history. They are the Ottoman to this king's throne. That's what God is doing right now. God is making all of Christ's enemies a footstool. That's that. He's continuing to do that, and he has been since the resurrection. Jesus is Lord. His enemies must turn to him either they will be broken and brought to repentance or they will be destroyed and brought to hell but come they must we are not making Jesus lord we are declaring that he is lord now don't confuse this too many christians and evangelicals today confuse this issue we think we we think we're just knocking door to door trying to get people to vote and sign on for this candidate named Jesus We're not asking people's permission to go ahead and jump on his, you know, partisan platform. That's not what we're doing. Way too much of that is going on in our world. We are not inviting people to make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. We are declaring his lordship. We're not asking their permission. Now, having looked over this passage, I want to take the time to make sure we understand not just what this passage is saying, but why it is saying it. How does this truth become something we can put into action? How do we, How are we doers of the word, having looked at Hebrews 1? If it is true that Jesus is Lord, that the angels are to worship him, and that we are to worship him, and all of this is true, then it follows that our confession isn't enough. Our confession isn't enough. As I mentioned at the start, we can't just believe that Jesus is Lord and then take off our boots and put up our, put, put our feet up. We are in a war and we've won. We know that we've already won. Jesus is, is raised. So we get to go now and we get to declare the victory to the ends of the earth. That's what we get to do. But what might that look like? To not just say Jesus is Lord, but declare that he is. What might that look like? And more to the point... What sort of strategy is necessary in order to accomplish the mission of discipling the nations? Before we answer that question, we need to keep something in mind. Your New Testament is the study notes for the Bible. You can get a study Bible for just about anything. I have, I have several. Um, sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. But your Bible already has a built-in study Bible. There are already the notes there. The apostles and gospel writers are the commentary. We have to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament for us. And that's essentially what Hebrews 1 is. And that's what a lot of passages in scripture are. They're commentaries on the Old Testament in light of Jesus. So we have to let the New Testament do the interpreting. And, and this is why so many people get tangled up in fanciful interp- interpretations of the text. Those who believe that Jesus has to physically return in order to establish his actual kingdom in literal Jerusalem on a literal throne are sadly lacking in exegesis. They are ignoring the apostles' commentary completely. This part of Hebrews makes it obvious that Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to the right hand of God is the enthronement. That's the enthronement. Jesus now sits on David's throne. Hosea 13 verses 10 to 11 tell us that the throne in Israel was yanked after Israel's round-the-clock iniquities. The throne was yanked. Now, if you recall, Israel wanted a king like the other nations. They, they didn't have a king, and they looked around at their neighbors and thought, gee, that would be wonderful if we could have that so that's what they wanted. They wanted they wanted a king like the other nations. God in his sovereign plan granted that request, but not without warning. He warned them. Listen, they they're going to tax you, things are going to go bad. And after all the warning it didn't matter. Israel didn't care. They wanted what they wanted. After all the heart wants what it wants, right? So, God gave kings to Israel, even raising up godly kings once in a while, few and far between it seems. Many, many of them were wicked, and because of it, the throne of God, while it was temporarily extended to men in Israel, it was revoked, as Hebrews 13 makes plain. That throne in Israel was to represent the throne of God in heaven. Since they sinned, the arrival of Jesus meant that that system was folded up with its Old Testament counterparts, specifically the ceremonial laws, and Jesus Christ, who came as David's son, now sits on David's heavenly throne. That his resurrection and ascension is the coronation ceremony. That that is him being king. That is him sitting on David's throne. That is him fulfilling it all. Now, you might say, well, why does why does this matter? Why why are you getting off into the weeds? We're going to get lost, come back to the path here. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because we're not waiting around for Jesus to come back and be king. Remember, we have to listen to the New Testament writers and apostles. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead and ascended to the throne of David in heaven, is king right now. Jesus is sitting on a throne and God is making his enemies a footstool. So he's king now, not later. And again, this isn't just a doctrinal point on the checklist we get to mark off. Listen, and I'm already ready to take the critique, so I'm just, just going to say it: postmillennialism is the gospel. Postmillennialism is the gospel. Much how, uh, much like how Spurgeon said Calvinism is the gospel, I use this terminology in the same way. No, we're not saying. You know, the good news used to be Jesus and him raised, um, crucified and raised, but now it's this doctrinal system. That's really the good news. I'm not saying that. Postmillennialism is the gospel. And what I mean is the gospel is a postmillennial gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ asserts that Jesus is the king right now in history and that the nations belong to him by virtue of his death, resurrection, and ascension. The New Testament writers affirm this repeatedly. Hebrews one affirms this over and over. Jesus is post-millennial because Jesus is King, but He's not just King in our hearts and over the church like our mistaken amillennial brothers and sisters believe. He's not in voluntary exile right now, awaiting His throne like our premillennial brothers and sisters believe. Jesus Christ is king now, and he has a scepter right now with which he rules and governs the nations. Correspondingly, we need to know something else. There is no version of the Christian gospel that has Christ as king, but not carrying out justice and righteousness in the world. I'll say that again. There is no version of the Christian gospel that has Christ as King, but not carrying out justice and righteousness in the world. You can't belong to Christ while simultaneously despising his justice, his righteousness, his law. Now notice what we're um what we're looking at here in our text regarding God's throne being Jesus' throne and, and him Jesus possessing the scepter of right uprightness which we're told is the scepter of his kingdom in verse A. Jesus is God. He rules the nations through means of his kingdom. And verse 9 tells us the ethical nature of that kingdom. Jesus loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Jesus Christ right now loves righteousness. He loves it. But he also hates lawlessness, wickedness. This transcendent sovereignty, this transcendent sovereignty is accomplished through the means of the law, word of God, and Jesus has an ethical scepter that goes with it. This is all an issue of ethics, right? Ethics, our kids need to understand that, right? Right versus wrong, good and bad, Uh, evil versus that which is good, righteous versus unrighteousness, Um, law versus lawlessness. It's an issue of ethics, And not just ethics, you know, in theory and out there, you know, in the sky floating around, but ethics in everyday life. Because Jesus Christ has been anointed with the oil of gladness, this king's rule is only accomplished by peace and righteousness. Notice that it is the oil of gladness. The fact that it is an oil of gladness rules out the hem and haw version of Christianity today. Listen, Christianity does not mumble. Christianity does not mumble. It does not walk in the streets, aimlessly kicking cans, depressed about the weather, with his hands in his pockets, hoping something can be done about it all. There is no dithering around in Christianity. There is no equivocation in the kingdom of God. There's no you know, back and forth, hem and haw, uh, no vacillating. There's no hesitation. It's an oil of gladness because the king rules the world with what? Truth and grace. So when we say that Jesus is the transcendent Christ, right, on the throne of David at the right hand of God, and he has a scepter and he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness, that's not. Th- those aren't just facts to affirm and believe. He achieves righteousness through the means of his law word, through his church as the kingdom of God permeates everything. Now, as I mentioned before, the current cultural experiment has gone awry. This much is abundantly clear. The mad scientist is definitely mad. We think that we can have a neutral, secular public square, and now the chickens have come home to roost. We, we are trying to cook up all sorts of gender profundities, and we're quite proud about it why else do you call it a pride parade? When the reality is we are a slithering, venomous snake full of morally bankrupt perversions. That is the cesspool of our culture right now. We, we're fine. We, we will murder your child. It's no big deal. That's our attitude. That's our culture right now. There, there is no objective truth, it is objectively stated, and no one stays around long enough to see the irony. The truth of the matter is, there is no neutrality, no secular space, and everything bubbling up right now is simply religiously motivated posturing. Religiously motivated posturing. That's that's what we're seeing unfold in our culture. Everything rising to the top of this pluralistic melting pot of gooey travesties is an attempt at transcendental authority. That's what it is. It's, It's the old bait and switch you can't be without a transcendent authority and so what do we do we try to we try to come up with our own now men may not long to worship angels today but they make no apologies about their worship of self the change in law and righteousness and morality and justice in our nation is a change of gods right now and right now we're putting jesus on the bench and have substituted ourselves This is the transcendent game we're playing. This is the switch, the transcendental switch. Who is the ultimate authority? Who is seated on the throne and his enemies are made a footstool? Who is it? Well, the answer is right now, me and my snowflake friends. Now, a warning warning to the church is in order. We cannot afford to be dissatisfied with the gospel. We cannot afford to be dissatisfied with the gospel. We cannot become worshipers of self and other men. We cannot dress the church up in sleazy outfits and hope for the best. Rebellious men will always try to dethrone Christ, and God, God will just laugh at them. He'll mockingly laugh at them, like the time when they killed Jesus, Psalm 2. He who sits in heaven laughs, and he holds them in derision. So, so the warning is, don't be dissatisfied with the gospel. We have what we need in Christ, and we don't need to try and sneak paganism in, in the back door. Christ is on the throne. That's our message. Deal with it. Deal with it. Hebrews as a whole is a treaty about the sole transcendency of the Christ mediator. Hebrews as a whole, as a book, is a treaty A sermonic treaty about the sole transcendency of the Christ mediator. Jesus is the preeminent sovereign one, the transcendent God man, the supreme one, which means that we do not need to try and put together a bunch of fake mediators. We don't need to to you know get cute and try to come up with a whole bunch of other ways of mediation. We do not need to bridge the gap between us and God by creating new forms of mediation, new forms of transcendency, new forms of supreme authorities. We don't need multiple ways to God. There is one way, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, he's greater than the prophets, He's greater than the angels, and guess what? He's the creator of all of it. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will suffice. We talked last week about the principle of finality, Jesus being the final revelation of God, and this week we focused on the principle of transcendency, and I want to explain that some more as we wrap up. The principle of fixed transcendency means that there must be a standard, a fixed point of reference that we can appeal to in order to make sense out of everything. I'll say that one more time. The principle of fixed transcendency means that there must be a standard, a fixed point of reference that we can appeal to in order to make sense out of everything. Hebrews 1 shouts from the rooftops that the fixed point of reference is not a what, but a who, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the book starts out the way it does. It... It starts right from the get. Remember, no greeting, no hello, hey, how are you, grace and peace. It's just straight doctrine. It's straight affirmation of the... transcendency, the superiority, the supremacy, the ultimacy of Jesus Christ. He is the integration point for everything. He is the transcendent one. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reference point, the ultimate standard. And only when we come to know him can we make sense out of, of meaning and purpose and order and all these other things. And Which means that a true Christ-centered preaching and proclamation of the gospel in the public square must have its anchor, true Christ-centered preaching and proclamation in the public square must have its anchor in Christ's transcendent mediatorial reign. 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the mediatorial king right now. He will turn the kingdom over to the Father once all of his enemies are defeated. We have to have ourselves anchored in that. If we don't anchor everything, and I mean everything, in the revealed word of God, then all we will have around us is social anarchy. And that's why the house around us is falling apart. We've put down our tools, we've hid in the corner, and we've prayed for the rapture. We forget that Jesus is already in process of renovating the home. So so grab a tool and get to work. All of our lives are to be oriented and grounded in Christ as king. All of our lives, every bit of it, kids, you too, all of our lives are are to be oriented and grounded in Christ as king. That's Hebrews chapter 1. Everything has to have this foundation. When we ignore the the true sovereignty of God in Christ, when we set aside the implications of his rule and reign as the sole mediator, we walk the path of anarchy and disobedience. And listen, do you want to know why men prefer to worship angels? Why men prefer to worship a God in their own image? It's a very simple answer. They do this because these gods, these philosophical systems cranked out by snowflake you, do not demand a single thing from them. They, these gods do not demand a single thing from them. When someone rejects Christ, they don't suddenly find themselves without a god. They find anything and make it a god. This is why men will worship anything but Christ, anything but Christ the king, because these gods ask nothing of them. Which means that as we seek to faithfully live our lives underneath the transcendent Christ, we have to have a proper telos, a proper goal. The aim, trajectory, and goal of the church is the kingdom of God. The goal of the church is the kingdom of God. We are told by Jesus To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are not to seek first cute tricks. We're not to seek first an an escape plan so we can get out of here. And, you know, let's do the cute tricks to try to win a few people to heaven. Uh, Obviously, we do believe in evangelism, but that's not what we're told to seek first. We are told to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. What we are trying to do is be about the righteousness that comes from King Jesus' scepter. We are aiming at Christ's sovereign transcendency, his kingdom rule. That's the goal. That's the proper telos. The kingdom of God, listen carefully, the kingdom of God is not dependent upon the church for its existence in the world but rather the church is dependent upon the kingdom of god for its existence in the world which tells us something important it is kingdom first it is jesus's transcendency first it's his authority first if we do not get this right we won't achieve anything we reap what we sow and remember unless the lord builds the house the laborers work in vain let's pray Our Father in heaven, we confess that we have not always thought of your Christ as the sovereign one, the one seated on the throne now, ruling and reigning right now. We have sought various devices to dethrone your majesty, and for that we confess and we repent. We cast ourselves on your mercy. We also confess our ineptitude as it pertains to our role as the church as being about the kingdom of God in the world. Instead of laboring to that end, we've made the local church the end goal. Father, forgive us for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would embolden us and empower us to be about your kingdom rule and reign today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.